I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. I'm very pleased to be doing this with Ian because there's lots of questions that I wanted to ask him and uh, it's nice to be given a public forum to do them. Um, can I start off by asking you something that I think is probably a bit audacious but the, um, in something like Whitechapel Scarlet Tracings there are characters based on book dealers one of which is you to an extent. To an extent. And I wondered now in The Last of London to what extent are you writing Ian Sinclair as a sort of character? When you see something, do you think about how you respond to it, or do you think about how this sort of character that's been created of you, by you, responds to it? Well, I think, you know, you, you'd probably understand that more than anybody, is this idea that the, the performed self is a very different self to whatever the, the real messy core is and that over a long period of time you kind of create a projection that's loosely associated with things that happened in my life and that have gone on through a, a long trajectory and so the, 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 the book dealing scavenger of uh, Whitechapel Scarlet Tracings is still present but neither of them are as I think me, me the, the me who would like really to be sitting quietly away in some corner sort of scraping and scribbling um, it's fascinating because the other characters who I've drawn on especially in Whitechapel Scarlet Tracings uh, one, one was a book dealer called Martin Stone one was a guy who went by the name of Drifield um, they were hardly fictionalised at all and so when I did that book it appeared that I was, I, was, I was pretending to write fiction but I was really just riffing on things that were happening in my life and now I'm, I'm pretending to write non-fiction, but Martin Stone, for example, has returned to this book as a ghost. Right. And so, you know, you, you're at the mercy of these characters that you create and draw upon. It, it, be, be careful who you listen to. <laughs> so, so when you're out and about doing your perambulations and you see the sorts of things in East London or in the East of England that have informed this book, do you ever find yourself thinking, well, I've thought this about them, but I wonder what that Ian Sinclair character would think about this and how he would express it, because it does seem there's a sort of heightened version. See, I think, again, you're, you're being um, more subtle than I am, okay. because I, I've, I've read your account of deconstructing your, your act, and it, this, is, this is seriously intellectual. I mean, this, I know you're... <laughs> this, is, this isn't Edmunds Hall, Oxford, you know, listen... <laughs> my my thing is is much more crude and instinctive in that you know I accept that there is there is a kind of version of the city that I've contrived over a long period of time, but I don't I don't really 
take it that seriously. Okay, well, do you put yourself in situations yes. to see what will happen yes. when you perhaps should have left? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um, when, you, when you've taken on the responsibility for writing something, that overrides everything. And I would put myself into situations in normal life I wouldn't go near. Um, of, if I can arrange to have some fall guy with me to do it, I'll do that. So someone like Andrew Cottingstay, who I've collaborated with a lot recently, is absolutely full on. He's like a million miles an hour permanent performance artist. Anybody we meet, he'll, he'll go straight into it. Then I can stand back and be in that role of the observer and writer. So yeah. I'm very happy to do that. So, so when you, I don't know if anyone's seen the film, the work that Ian's done with Andrew Cotting, but he seems to sort of almost use you in those films, which I appreciate our collaborations. It's, it's, but, it's a mutual yeah. kind of uh, cannibalism. Yeah, he sort of thinks, what, what would happen if I put this person into this situation? And it's... It's you, isn't it? Which means he gets, he gets different perspectives on the same event. But, it, but in, in one of these films, uh, um, Swan Down, there's a fiberglass uh, swan's swan. pedalier taken from Hastings to Hackney. And there were, there were two really important aspects of this for me. One, one is I realised for the first time you can cheat, you know, because I had a terrible morality about writing. If I, if I walked around the M25, I really did walk around every yard of it because I wanted to see what would happen. And all of the books were like that. If I walk around the overground, you know, I'm doing it. With Andrew, it, actually, the reality was the film. The film was the reality. And if you needed to cheat and come to the end of the River Rother and chuck the thing on a, on a low loader and move it to um, the next place along Tunbridge, then you do that. And fine, and then... When we get to Tunbridge and we, the, the swan goes back into the river, who should arrive but uh, Alan Moore and Stuart Lee? And this is, with Andrew, you, there's no preparation, you're just thrown onto this thing. And I thought you came up with a very good critique of me, which I laughed at, which was part of this conversation. You said, like, oh, he, he thinks nothing can happen in Hackney without his permission. And I thought, this is well, horribly untrue, but also it's very funny. I'm sorry, this is clearly kind of festered too. for a decade. <laughs> and that managed to survive in the cut, too. Well, yeah, but that was, that, was about, that was when Hackney libraries weren't allowing you to speak no, in true. Hackney. Because Look, I couldn't speak in Hackney libraries, but I'm now in a Hawksmoor <laughs> church. So yeah. I don't know what Hawksmoor thinks about it, because yeah. that's a theme that's run through everything I've done. So, so what? So what you're saying is working with working with Andrew who sort of looks like a documentary filmmaker, but is in fact making sort of fictions, yeah. enabled you to yeah. to write what still feels like documentary and what is published in a serialised form uh, often in the in there London. Is, there are books, more right? more fictional construction right. in the last few books I've done because I really wanted to to write novels, but the market wouldn't allow that. You yeah. know, essentially, I was, I was stuck with my brand, which right. was this form of London wandering and scavenging. And so, for example, at the end of this book, um, the, there's a long Brexit walk in which this troupe of sort of uh, random figures, musicians and poets and people, straggle down from Waltham Abbey to the coast. And I wanted, at the end of it, to do a final chapter in which uh, I'd planned this for some time. Andrew and I would walk in a single day from Hastings to Canterbury. And as circumstances evolved and as the deadline arrived, I couldn't do it. It, just, it wasn't possible. So I, I just I wrote it without doing it. And so the end of the book is actually a, a fake. 
except that the business in the ostiary, where you, there are um, St. Leonard's ostiary in height, I really did go there and there were all these skulls, but the rest of it I kind of just made up from a series of previous... But then, just to finish, um, my morality insisted that I actually do do it when the book was finished. So then, subsequently, immediately, we set off on a walk with Andrew Cotting, which took us to Canterbury and then back to London. So you felt obliged to form your own fictions Yes, my own fictions then lay down a moral obligation that you have to to live by them. I don't know what that is, but it's... Where the, where the apparent um, documentary writing appeared to drift into fiction, where the alarm bells rang for me was in Rose Red Empire, where you said you found a temple of a Roman god in the cellar of your house in Hackney. Was that true? <laughs> it is true. Oh. I, mean, it's not... I thought that was obviously made up. <laughs> what it was, I don't know. It was one of the strangest times of my life when I wrote, this. I wrote a book, um, Down River, and it was... The whole world had collapsed around me. The, the house was actually being physically pulled down. It was a long-term project, and, and all that was going on. Uh, my father died. I had to go down to Wales and deal with that. My mother was, was drifting away into a kind of her own version of the past. My wife was in hospital. I was looking after the kids, and I had a couple of hours a day to write. In the middle of this, we had these kind of Irish builders out of faulty towers, and they would come for a couple of days, and you wouldn't see them for weeks. Anyway, one day they come and say, we've just got found this thing underneath your kitchen. So they kind of take me down, and there is this thing that could have been a, a holy well or whatever it was, I don't know. And they said, listen, if we uh, say anything about this, we've got to call the council and, you know, you'll be stuck for months. So I said, okay, just chuck the concrete in, fill it in. <laughs> and then I realized this may have been a horrendous mistake, but... I did believe it was some sort of ritual family. Well, but it, you've trapped the energy in there. That's in, very dangerous, what you've done. The concrete I, over the spirit. I know, but when I, when I researched it more seriously, I found that this, this whole area, though there'd never been any houses built on it before, had been brick kilns. It'd been all market gardens and brick kilns. And I think what this was was actually a, a brick kiln for making the bricks that formed the city of London. So I don't feel too bad about it now. Though who knows, in sort of Lovecraftian terms, something horrendous maybe waiting. Who knows what will happen to the fictional Ian Sinclair in that case. This, this, in the last of London, you write a lot about how... Well, funny enough, one of the quotes I pulled out of the book, reading it again this week, is actually the same one as on the, as on the back, about London being centrifugally challenged to the point of obliteration. And you feel like it's no longer a place you can relate to. It, has, it doesn't have much in common with the London of the late 60s, early 70s. Um, but it's but it's not just London that's changed in that period. It's you've changed as well, haven't you? And the, in the in the book, everything is put onto the city and the forces that have worked upon yeah, it, rather than there's it a reason. Being. There is a reason for that. You know, I, I mean, I, I'm not I'm not a Londoner. You know, like like most other people, I came by accident in the 60s for a weekend in Hackney, and I never had the imagination to leave. But what 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 happens is after a long long period of time, it's like the third policeman with Flann O'Brien that you exchange your molecules with the city until literally that, that you, you can't separate the two in your own mind. And, and um, what I was thinking of was um, the writer Steve Moore, who wrote a lot of comics and was something of a mentor to Alan Moore. And there's a piece Alan Moore wrote about him called Unearthing in a book I edited called City of Disappearances. And what happens there is there's a tiny little walk around the top of Shooter's Hill. Suburban walk, takes in a pub, 
and it also takes in a Bronze Age burial mound where Steve's ashes were scattered. And in this piece that Alan writes, at the very end of it, you go round this circuit, you arrive at this burial mound, and Steve Moore gets to the point where he thinks he can't differentiate between himself and Shooter's Hill. And essentially, he's become Shooter's Hill. The houses are his eyes. He sees the grass shimmering on this mound. He sees the leaves shivering, and he's, he knows that he is Shooter's Hill. And all he's got to do is become a kind of medium for that place. And I think that's the sense that what happens in London after obsessively tramping it for so long, there's no, there's no difference. All you're doing is articulating aspects in the city that you notice that are slightly changing all the time. Well, what, what's really changed in this book, and I suppose some of the earlier ones, is you seem to have uh, got fixated on certain details that weren't significant ten years ago that seem to suddenly stand for a lot. Phone usage... Bicycles, the way that um, the canals... Especially when they combine. Yeah, phone usage and bicycles. I mean, the stuff about bicycles is really funny. When I first read those bits, they seemed... When you first started writing about bicycles a lot in the London Review of Books, it seemed an extreme position. And then suddenly we can see all the planning, everything that was behind it. I mean, there's lots of... Obviously, there's lots of good things about the idea of bicycles and cities, but just... Walking down here from King's Cross now tonight through those sort of relatively quiet Bloomsbury-ish back streets, the killers are the bicycles. They're, they're coming out of nowhere, and you can't you can't hear them, and they're around you. They're, they've they've taken up a position in the city that has changed the nature of the city from the point where in earlier times the bicycles were being used by workers going to work. They couldn't afford to have any other form of transport, so they're on bikes. Then it became the Actually, it was a class thing that the bike was a status symbol, and you had to be quite wealthy to have one of the bikes. So it would actually make the you know the the, the process which you've used for years of just wandering about is much more difficult now much because of the difficult. way those spaces are occupied by well, professional class cyclists. I mean, particularly yeah. things like canal banks are absolutely lethal. They're they're the kind of a, the the fault line of everything that's going on in the city is there. I mean, just to the extent there's you know, this guy I see every day. I'm really quite shocked. It's un- under Mare Street Bridge, there's a man now who's chosen to sleep in a sleeping bag there because of the bicycles. The bicycles offer a kind of form of protection because nobody's going to... There's so much traffic, nobody can get near to remove him. So he's there. And, and the kind of few walkers that are there leave tributes for him, and every day they, there's, someone leaves a, an energy drink and a banana and then a, a week or so ago, I was walking there, and I saw that the banana had cycle tracks right through the middle. Right. I thought, this is, a, this is a symbol of this kind of new London, um, where the, the thing that freaks me is that the various groups are, are atomized. They don't see each other. We're, we're, we're like a series of different ghosts in different time frames who do not interconnect with each other. Yeah, and yet when, and when, but when you were here 50 years ago, you felt it was more integrated, and now... And now that all these well, different was, tribes are... are yeah. Well, it was all a mess. I mean, we, essentially, when, when I arrived in Hackney, we, we were a kind of a, a content provider for... for we were, we were, because we were kind of bohemian, so we were freakish. We, we, were, we were wide open to be burgled, so we were kind of burgled every other day while we had anything. The, the cars, when you had cars, were always smashed in. But nevertheless, it actually felt in some weird way a kind of better dialogue. 
And when the police came, came round to look, look at the house after one of these burglaries, I remember very vividly, they came in. And really, they just used that as an excuse to nose around your house. And they went up to, to the room that I had all the books and stuff in and said, Oh, my God, this is terrible what they've done here. Nothing had happened. That was just my room. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, I like the way you, you use the, uh, the story of the Mole Man of Hackney as, to, to exactly examine that idea. You talk about how an eccentric, a genuinely eccentric figure mines out this hole to live in full of, full of junk, but then the same space is subsequently appropriated by artists in a knowing way. And, and, and that seems to say a lot about your attitude to what's happened to the city or to life generally, actually, where things that happened naturally as a result of eccentric outgrowths of personality suddenly have to become sort of commodified in some way. This kind of level of hyper self-consciousness yeah. and, the, and the level that everybody knows everything and everybody can blog everything. So we live in this sort of pressurized present tense rather than, I think the most important thing, the only thing I've learned in all of this is that um, time is this sort of series of parallel strands that run. And that if there's a linearity from the first book to the last book, there's also much weirder things going on at the same time. And they, they, weave, they weave together. And so you need to get into a sense where um, anything and everything is happening at the same time. The, the Thomas, Thomas de Quincey is stalking his figure, walking Stuart, Today, he's out there. Uh, we're in this Nicholas Hawksmore church. You know, you, you know that Andrew Marvell got married here or that this is a wrongly aligned Hawksmore church and it's part of a weird pattern I was fiddling with years ago and yet here we are back doing this thing. We're all wired up and, you know, it, it's being filmed. And that's unthinkable, but it, it is the way that it's happening simultaneously and spontaneously in a, in a plural world. There seem to be, in this book, um, a lot of rather more straightforward comedy that obviously I enjoyed, which is, um, I mean, this, this, sec this section where you're... Well, maybe it's because the character of Ian Sinclair in this, as this sort of rather uh, sort of fogeyish observer sometimes, you're able to enjoy being baffled by the, the, the vocabulary of young people. And there's a number of places where that happens, where you write long stream of consciousness paragraphs about stuff you've overheard on the tube. Because you can't avoid it. Yeah. This is the thing. Once upon a time, this was obviously it was going on, but now if you, it's like theatre. I mean, every time you step on a train, you're into this incredible babble. People, people are shouting these half-heard conversations, and I obsessively started to, to take down some of this stuff. Would that be a good bit to read? Yeah. Yeah. You're going to read it? Well, or you can. You do it. You all right, okay, I'll do it. Well, can I do the so bit from page 32? Yeah, you do that, right. and I'll do another bit. And maybe 94, 95, I can't remember. Okay. Yeah, all right. Information junkies were walking faster, heads down, from flats and boats, from ramps and roads, zeroing on the digitally illiterate, making them swerve and cringe. So essentially I forgot to... This is people on phones. So essentially I forgot to take the keys back. So ideally that works for you, basically. The 22nd of September, three days or four days is just fine with me. So the problem is, I don't know any proper men. All I know is women. So it might be an idea if you speak to the concierge. So take them. I've got a fridge full of fruit. So he's a chocolate maker. That's very exciting. <laughs> so dancing with a dog. Yeah, honestly, a dog. So he said I should get Botox. So I'm applying for a US teaching visa, and I'm also applying for German, just in case. So they're all raised in incubators all over the country. But once they mate, they mate for life. Boris is behind all that. LAUGHTER 
People are so hungry, they're starving. So it's like sex on your wedding night. So I rang Stacy to say, what's the air temperature in Melbourne? Very important. I'm allergic to honey, so I can't eat cornflakes. So do you know Will Smith? Uber to Shoreditch House costs about eight quid. <laughs> that's every journey you have out. Yeah, that's every journey. That's the canal. This is, uh, I'll just read a little bit about... Um, one of the things I was very concerned about with London is as, as the surface was being more and more colonized and um, over, overtaken by development, it seemed to be the idea that the only thing left to invade was underneath. So there's a whole notion of, of digging down. And Crossrail is obsessively digging one after another the project. And to, to counter this spirit, and I, I noticed this building is now gone. There's a rectory by St. Augustine's Tower, which was the oldest building in Hackney, um, a vestigial remnant of something very ancient. Um, there were a group of people living in the rectory who felt that they were living in the last of times, in a sense. And what they do is they, they burrow down through the lawn of the rectory. They make a kind of tunnel which becomes a camera, camera obscura. And uh, all kinds of uh, disparate voices in Hackney are invited to go down into this hole and do, do their own thing. I, th- I thought this was very intriguing. Um, and I went along to see what they were doing. And this is, this is a bit... And the thing about this was that once they'd finished, after a certain number of months, then the hole was filled in exactly as it had been, and it was left as it was. And now the rectory and everything else I noticed last night walk- walking through there was obliterated. There was earth inside them and they dug, wrote Paul Celan. And with those words I felt the scratch of curved claws against the distended drum of the belly. Earth calls to earth. But the earth I pictured when I employed that disquieting quotation in a book of poems published in 1973 was ballast in the intestines of a deranged European archaeologist, sunstruck in the desert, uncovering a Sumerian ziggurat, deciphering cuneiform tablets. Or that earth was hard-baked and red in Yucatan with the giant poet Charles Olson, sweating and striding and fingering Mayan shards to provoke a spark of inspiration to carry him forward. The earth was inside them, certainly, but it was not here. It was never London. We had allotments beside railways and canals, poisoned land in recovery, modest gardens waiting on the next grand project, which was oblivion. They tear up the earth, I said, searching for their fathers. And again they dig, and the earth is sweet. The Hackney Hole is eight square meters straight down through the tidy lawn of a former rectory close to the heart of the village settlement on the banks of the buried Hackney Brook. This private garden is separated from St. Augustine's Tower by a wall of weathered brick. The periscope thrust of the square tower is all that remains of the borough's oldest ecclesiastical building, a 16th-century revision of a 13th-century church founded by the Knights of St. John. The whole is a statement, and it's properly properly capitalized. 
The laborers, a self-confessed art collective, work the hole by hand with pick and shovel, turn and turn about, and it takes them four days to complete the shaft, and this is achieved without any of the tortured grinding, screeching, and gouging that attends civil engineering projects that carve so recklessly through tarmac and concrete. The heavy clay of this loudly regenerated fiefdom down and down again through the pipes and wires of utility companies that treat their cone-protected pits as art installations organized to impede traffic, to block junctions and towpaths. A many-tongued militia and yellow tabards retreat to their all-day breakfasts and tabloid-insulated porter cabins, and it's easy to believe that Mare Street and Morning Lane have been rebranded as Volcker Highways' considerate constructors. The noise, the din those improvers make, the decibels of patronizing signs, the notices that appear in advance of demolition. The defining political requirement of our era is the art of getting your apology in first, and often, and letting the world know that you're sorry about being sorry, you're wet-eyed and you're stiff-lipped on the cusp of another upwardly mobile regeneration, resignation. Utilities are billboards. There's not a dust cart without a grandiose statement of intent. This is an ecology of excess. This is a slow death of meaningful language. This is lies as lies. And these are what I find on the walls of Hackney. Transforming waste, investing to improve our streets, working for a better tomorrow, investing in a walking environment, creating space to inspire. Just enough is more. <laughs> our property knowledge gives you power. Turning ideas into business. World leader in paintball. <laughs> Thieves beware, working in partnership with Hackney Council. <laughs> Own a piece of East London heritage. CCTV cameras have been installed for the purpose of crime. <laughs> Investing in competitiveness. Impossibility is nothing. Hackney is more interesting than history. <laughs> Hackney is more interesting than history. Yeah, well, do you, do you think you... I mean, I, I moved to, to Hackney in, well, Stoke Newington, which is posh Hackney now, but in the mid-90s, and I felt very lucky to be there then because I've been able to witness an area in transition, I've witnessed gentrification, I've witnessed types of people that I knew being priced out or moved out. I've witnessed all sorts of changes, and yet the history of the place is still there at ground level. You, you know, you, you've, you've tapped into that history, the sort of Arthur Macken idea yeah. of, of he, he sees Stoke Newington as part of a sort of wonderful passage out of London into, yeah. into the Northwest Passage and the Secret Gardens and all that. Yeah, and, and that history has been important to you. Well, it, well it, was, it was good because it meant that I felt I could see, I could see the whole of society changing and write about it but from one little corner of a place and if there was ever a big idea happening I could localise it into some experience that had happened in Stoke Newington or Hackney because the diversity of people and the cut and thrust of all these sorts of ridiculous ideas that you boil down to these 
statements on walls were so in evidence that in a way I felt like I didn't, I didn't almost need to go anywhere. I could always find a local story that I could slot myself into yeah. to write stand-up about, which reflected a bigger, Absolutely. A bigger yeah. picture, even if it was something like different you know, communities deciding what religious garments they were required to leave on while they weighed themselves at the Weight Watchers. You know, it's sort of things, everything was there that you needed to find out about. And I wondered if you... How soon did you recognise that? You know, I mean, I kind of... Well, it took me a while to realise that this was, in a weird way, kind of a, one of the, the centres of the universe. In yeah. So you didn't have to move. It was, it was essentially all, all there. Well, and also time would, would pass by you from... What, you know, you could see the changes in society happening from your window. And, uh, and, I, and I wondered, you know... You, do you think that you would have ended up producing the same body of work had you lived even three miles in a different direction? No, I don't, I don't think I would. You know, really, I don't think I would because um, I grew up in, in South Wales and I never, never really came to grips with that in any useful way until, till, till I was pretty old and went back to do a book called Black Apples of Gower. But, um, oh, here we are. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I don't do this very often. Um, and then um, I lived first of all in uh, when I came to London in um, Brixton and Streatham and South London because I was in film school in the early 60s and I I didn't you know I wrote bits and pieces but there was no real focus to it and then I lived in North London again um, I got one one thing out of it which was around um, an event at the Dialectics of Liberation at the A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. in Camden Town. And Camden Town is also changing quite interestingly. But... Then, quite by accident, you know, I came to see some people in a communal house in Hackney. And once I'd moved there, I, I kind of... It was almost like the scales falling, you know, just walking out, feeling completely that all the elements I wanted and, and could possibly start to write about were there. And immediately I started, um, one, being involved in a diary film project. We were filming all this life. And secondly, keeping notes just about the everyday life of working as a gardener and so on, until the perfect moment of combining working as a gardener and the strange stories of how badly we were treated and what was going on in the landscape with the process of the Hawksmoor churches, which I was cutting the grass for. And everything kind of fell together and the whole business started there. And are you sorry to sort of say farewell to this area of research now? This is the last of London, and you're about to start on a different... Been been a bit like you with a stand-up. You know, I've said farewell, and then I've immediately started writing another one about the same stuff. Oh, have you? (laughs) What what is your next project? Because when you said, ask me about your next project, I assumed it was going to be something very different. There's a grand grand next project. It's doing contemporary dance. There's a theoretical... Right. Um, But there's a real next project, which was um, the the Wellcome Trust are having an exhibition in... 
um, October, about a year's time, about buildings and health. And they, they, want, they contacted me and asked for a book that would appear in parallel but not be the book of the exhibition. And I just started to, to think, they, I mean, their, their pitch basically is that you live in certain kinds of housing, it causes certain kind of health conditions. And my take feel weirdly opposite was that people with certain kinds of conditions find the right buildings to bring them to. Essentially, we are carrying these around with us and we deposit them. So I've started to work on that. And obviously, as soon as I started to work, I mean, a Hawksmoor church yeah. appeared. Um, I'm very taken with what's going with the way that certain people have looked at Christchurch Spitalfields and the great drawings by, um, and paintings by Leon Kossoff. But in Christchurch Spitalfields, there are a, um, a, three, a triptych by um, Rebecca Hind, which nobody notices, nobody acknowledges in the church. And they came for an exhibition in 2010, and they've just hung on to them ever since. And yet, they're not there. They're like a kind of, they're like a veil of strange colour. And other, and I began to become very interested in that conjunction. And so, once again, without meaning to, I found myself writing about exactly the same stuff, but from a different point of view. So that is the next. That's that's the book I'm working on. But beyond that, with the one I'm really kind of thinking out for a long time is in Peru, because uh, I know people ask, what are you going to do next? I wanted something that was sufficiently far enough away to sound quite dramatic. <laughs> and yet it's been there all the time, you know, in a book called Dining on Stones, which was an attempt to do something somewhere else, which was in Hastings, uh, and the A13. One of the things that was there in fiction was it was a, a book written by my great-grandfather, who at this stage of his life he'd, he'd kind of he'd lost all his money, which was invested in coffee, which he'd been he'd been involved as a planter in Ceylon. It had all gone belly up, so he had no money, and he took a job from the Peruvian Corporation of London, who paid him a hundred pounds a month to make this incredible, probably leading to death, trip into the into the backwaters of these indigenous people that had never been explored in Peru. And he, he wrote an account of this and produced maps and stuff. And I've had that book around since I was a kid without really looking at it, hearing adults talk about it. And then I actually read it. And I realized everything I've done is stolen from this book. You know, the, 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 the tone of voice, the humor, everything is in there, along with photographs. And, and had you read that book as a child? I'd looked at the pictures. Yeah. And I kind of I re- read it properly now as, as an adult. And I realized I had to kind of reprise that journey. Um, and in part, the interesting thing was that when, when he met the, this particular tribal group, he persuades them to make balsa rafts and go on a journey that be out of their own knowledge. And they, they do until they run up against these rapids and nearly kill themselves. And that's the point where Werner Herzog made Fitzcarraldo. So I thought, oh, okay. <laughs> we're, we're off on this one. And, and um, luckily, also, my, my daughter uh, became very interested in this because she talked to her grandfather, my father, in ways that he'd never talked to me when she was ill, uh, when she went down to stay there. And they, they had long kind of stories and anecdotes about this trip and this guy. So she knew more about it than I did, really. And she got in touch with an anthropologist, a woman who's working now with these people, and there are not many people who speak the language, and so she's determined to go back. And so it's kind of a a nice project cooking. 
Um, I don't know, don't know where we'll, we'll go with it, but in the end I feel obligation that I've, I've got to go there. Yeah. If that makes a lot of sense, that, you, that it was basically taking an approach that your grandfather had, yeah. had worked on yeah. and applying it to your own environment yeah. and then taking what you've learned from that back to the place that he worked out that approach. Well, I think, I think the, thing, the thing is, as you get really old, you know, is that, that you, you got, you know, a good few years of shtick before you come to that. It's this moment when um, the barriers between yourself and the world sort of dissolve to some extent. You flow out more. So this, this book felt quite relaxed in a sense. I felt I'm coming to the end of this, this thing. Um, I can just do that. And then after that, there's a real release and there's a real sense of kind of... Uh, it's all going, you know, it's all going, but though there's no, I can't divide myself from what's out there. We're flowing, and if I can somehow get into this stream that he was in, somehow, you know, we're going to come together, and I can see where all this urge, this neurosis came from. In how many years' time do you think you'll feel that Peru isn't what it was? <laughs> <laughs> well, see, I never knew what it was before, <laughs> which is a help. Um, and so I've got a lot to learn about what it was before I know what it should be now. Should we um, take some questions and see what they inspire? Has anyone got a question? Oh, that's awkward, isn't it? <laughs> You'll have to do another no. one. Okay. <laughs> well, um, no. Have you run out? No, I haven't run out. I, can, I mean, I can. Well, I'll tell you what I was hoping that, you'd, that you would do, but you haven't. You're not going to do it. Was I was um, when you you wrote somewhere about having been um, commissioned in the in the early seventies to write a first draft of, 60s, of in the late sixties of a of a Conan film, yeah, yeah, yeah. which yeah, we we had a bit of an email exchange. I know, and I thought, see, I assume this was a made up thing. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, before I did any of this sort of business of writing about London, I, when I came to London to try and uh, get involved with films, I'm mainly documentary films. But um, what happened was that people I'd worked with uh, in Dublin on various films, one, one of whom was, was a guy called Tom Baker, who uh, um, was a great friend of Mike Reeves, who made Witchfinder General. And, and Tom um, wrote two films, The Sorcerers and Witchfinder General, with, with Mike Reeves. So I began to hang out down there in Yeoman's Row where he lived. He was quite a strange and interesting character. And, and moved into a world where there were these bizarre film projects floating about. The first one came off um, Bob Hope's daughter, Linda, to, who, had, who had been sent to make a documentary in India about mothers and children. And they, they were rather shocked when they got to India. It was a bit rough. And um, they never really stepped out of the air-conditioned limo. And they arrived back in London with, with no footage. And they had to deliver to Bob, who was quite heavy duty, this film about Indian children. And so they kind of looked around for some young, impoverished filmmakers who would do it for next to nothing. And we then shot some stuff around Whitechapel with, with um, kids and in Kew Gardens, sort of jungly stuff, and interviewed Linda uh, and her companion for many hours of tape, and we kind of fudged this together into a documentary that went out in India, in, sorry, in California when they got back home. You made it's a false documentary about India in Kew Gardens. And the follow-up to this was um, the guy who did this with me, who's a painter, 
was was met in a lift a guy who who had got some money from Hare who was asked to do the original treatment of Conan and, and he couldn't write so his notion of doing this was he picked up various you know, young would-be screenwriters around the place and got them all to write treatments give them a hundred quid and then he was going to combine them all into a finished thing so we with this other guy we were given the job of, of doing this first treatment of Conan and um so I read all, I got all, the nice thing was all these um, Robert Howard paperbacks, a huge batch of them arrived in, in a great parcel. And I spent the next weeks just reading the whole lot in one hit and producing this script. And we went away, we both went away separately to do our first version and came back at the end of a week. And I'd, I'd kind of done it too quick, you know, I'd written the whole treatment. And he had, he had drawn some nice pictures that were going to go on the credits. So we kind of said, hmm, I'm not sure this is going to work. So I went away and I, I laboured on that and I did produce this thing. And when, all those years later, the actual film the Schwarzenegger one, yeah. There, yeah. Was, there were two sequences, at least, that I'm sure were derived from this strange original treatment. See, I absolutely love that piece of, of trivia, that there are <laughs> elements of your work in the so kind of the Barbarian film. And I... And, I th- I, now I think that's a project you should revisit because I would like to see... Well, there is now, you know, weirdly, and this is so, almost beyond belief, there's a, there's a Welsh academic from Aberystwyth who um, went out to uh, Texas, Harry Ransom in Texas, where all my papers and detritus had been sent some while back. And he, he zoned in like you did on that. Yeah. And he, he read this thing. And he's now writing a thesis whereby... He reckons that he can interweave this Conan treatment with aspects of Welsh mythology that he's been working on, as if I'd kind of intended this, <laughs> except only by accident, in as much as it was written largely in North Wales. Well, I'd like you to go back to it and have Conan as an old man complaining about the gentrification <laughs> of, of the fantasy world that he lives in. A good routine. But, I mean, again, it's not, it's not a million miles away from music because Howard was sort of yeah. corresponded with Lovecraft and these sorts of people. I think he's an interesting... Right, he's, a, he's a pulp writer, but there are occasionally brilliant bits in it where he, he kind of quite subversively managed to get quite literary things into, oh, yeah. into, into the pulps. And... Um, uh, well, I was reading Lovecraft just sort of before that, really, by way of uh, Brian Catling, who's a friend of mine who was an obsessive Lovecraft reader, and he was always passing on these things, so I was, I was getting that sense of it. And what I didn't realise until I went there to Gloucester, Massachusetts, to do something on the poet Charles Olson, was that there were actually kind of strange connections that, that a lot of Lovecraft was based on Gloucester and a visit he'd made to Gloucester, really? which has a very dark kind of occult in Dogtown. It's a very, very peculiar... Gloucester here? Gloucester, Massachusetts. Oh, well, I was going to say, not for here. God's sake. <laughs> no, not here, unfortunately. Lovecraftian tale. Yeah, that would have been a lost tale. Are there any? Are there any other projects like that that were hanging around that would seem that would seem a surprise to people that you'd that you'd worked on during that period? Because I mean, we were talking about it before we came on. About I was saying when I when I first came to London, it was much easier to make a start trying to do things in the arts in the late eighties, early nineties, because there were all sorts of much weird easier. little jobs you can get. I mean, I've written parts of an encyclopedia of gardening for the Royal Cultural Society where I was told off for writing rather too florid things by my uh, editor who was uh, Aldous Huxley's nephew and um, 
would take us to the pub on Fridays. You remember in the 80s when everyone stopped working at lunchtime on a Friday and uh, show us photos of having his nappy changed by G.H. Lawrence and things like that. And that was just, and I only got it through, I didn't get it through any special connections. I just went to some, you know. That, that was more the nature of the city, these, these sort of weird conjunctions yeah. and things, I mean. Uh, well, I mean, 1967, when, when I did a film, this film for German television about Allen Ginsberg and the dialectics of liberation, I mean, I literally wrote a, this much on a page about it. So a Dutch friend of mine was, was, um, went to Cologne, where WDR tele- German TV was really good at that time. And they said, OK, you know, here, here's the money, go and make this film. So you could, at that time in London, within, within 24 hours, you know, I was ringing on the doorbell of where Ginsburg was staying in with an American millionaires on Regent's Park, and I said, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll do that. And, you know, you could do that. And I was corresponding with William Burroughs and um, publishing him when I was a student. I think I was the first person. To so even though we weren't all connected by email and the internet and Twitter, you're saying yeah, you got easier, more quickly easier, to these. Yeah. Because you could get to, there, weren't, there weren't sort of barriers between you and the person. You could just turn up on their doorstep and ring the bell and off you go. And then, then after that I did a um, film script for The Shadows. It was a, a science fiction film set in Ireland where they had weird doubles uh, because it was the moment they, they'd seen the Beatles films, how successful they were, and they thought wanted to do something kind of wacky. There's a science fiction film about the shadows. Yeah, well, it doesn't exist because it never got made. But well, there's a script there's, somewhere. There's a script. There's a script. You could probably find it in Texas if you. Perhaps they should. Perhaps they should meet Conan. So I'm saying this is it. This is an era of these. You never knew. And on the other side of it, you could go out the same day and get jobs as a gardener or working in breweries or whatever. It was something interesting and be paid a pittance, but it would be enough to, to um, independently publish small press books. Well, were you paid for the Shadow science fiction film? No. Was it? No. Nothing. But you didn't, you didn't, it wasn't your idea to submit. It wasn't my idea. It was the idea of the person who did the music for Witchfinder General who kind of thought he'd move across into production and so he said said, do it and I did it but there was no money. I did get paid for Conan, 100 quid so yeah, it was quite a lot of money then Yeah, The the Shadows and the Conan film were it? No, The Shadows was a ripper Was it? (laughs) Because they looked at it (laughs) Right When I was was trying to research something about the acid folk movement as well I was um, the the only contemporary film of the Irish folk rock band Doctor Strangely Strange was shot, appeared to be shot by you. It was. was. About. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah. How did that come about? Well, I was, I was a big friend of theirs. We were in... Um, in Dublin. Trinity College, Dublin, I, together. I, Paul was a big friend of mine, and I uh, directed him in a Beckett play. Right. And Tim Goulding was a, was a friend, who, uh, another friend of mine, and, and Tim Boo, the third one, actually drew the illustrations for the William Burroughs piece I published in Dublin. So I knew them all in Dublin. Then when we were living in Hackney in a sort of series of communal houses and they were coming over to record the first LP, they stayed with us. And I was, this was when I was doing this uh, 8mm film diary, so they just happened to be there, so they got swept into that. And now this was, some of, some of that material was cobbled together for a little, little DVD. When in the uh, in in this book you talk about those um, early days in Hackney and holding down three different jobs simultaneously and coming in damp at night, but it's but you're able to look back at it in quite a romantic way now. Yeah, 
well, the romantic thing about that particular thing was I was one, one of the three jobs was working at night on Liverpool Street Station for the post, and it was a time of the IRA bombing campaign, so we were always a bit nervous carrying. But it, but it was brought back to me by reading um, Sebald's Austerlitz, where he has a lot of stuff on Liverpool Street Station of these strange corridors and empty waiting rooms and that ghostly sense of what the station was, the sort of carbonized uh, arches and pillars. And um, it was really kind of a weird privilege to have those spaces available to you in that way and then to cycle. I was actually yes, on a bicycle. Yes, cycle back home to Hackney in the middle of the night for a couple of hours' kip. Yeah, that's what you said. bookstore, which was, again, an education, and um, working as a gardener, pri- you know, private gardener for a pound an hour in Hampstead. And that was the era where knowing about the values of books, you could basically zip around London from place to place, up and down Charing Cross Road, and essentially trade one book to another shop four doors down if you knew that they'd underpriced it. And yeah, well, the most extreme was Foils, you know, used to put out books every morning in, in trays outside the shop. And the old, the old book dealers I knew who were making scavenging a living would go through the foils trays outside the shop, make a selection, and then take them to the top of foils where there's an antiquarian department and sell them back. <laughs> and there were a lot of things. I, mean, I came in on the very end of this, but it was wonderful to see the economy of the city. It was like a kind of model of Thatcherism. Yeah. In that I, I, I scavenged a book on... Um, Club Row, Brick Lane on a Sunday morning and I, I would sort of look it up see what it was, clean it up give it out on the market in Islington on a Thursday and by the following Monday it was in Savile Row, you know, in a glass case and you could see this, the three four moves. You could track the you same track, book around the city. It. Because it was a smallish group of people, it was a sort of and the only thing was you couldn't sort of break that chain. Yeah. And when, when it began to fall apart was like on the edge of the internet when people sort of, everybody, if, if you found a book in Brick Lane for nothing and you, were, you weren't prepared to sell it at the modest price, you, want, you, you knew that somebody somewhere was selling it for, and you wanted to do that. Right. And then the whole thing fell apart. And so at the moment, I mean, obviously everybody knows the price of everything. Yeah. So that whole thing has fallen apart. Yeah. And, and in some ways... The, the the big game hunter aspect of being that sort of figure has gone now, hasn't it? Because of the internet, because totally, you totally. you know you you will find you will find the thing. It was you're wonderful, but it was incredibly hard work. I mean, it, the hours were were ridiculous. You had to you were getting up very early every morning. But you know, I think it would be in um, Farringdon Road on a, on a Saturday morning, which was amazing. It was an adventure in itself. Portobello Road under the flyover on a, on a Friday morning where I, kind of, I picked up uh, John Lennon in his own right for 50p in the gutter, and it was, uh, it was signed by all the Beatles and all their girlfriends and Helen Shapiro and everything. Yeah. And it sold for £1,000, which was a phenomenal amount of money in those days. You know, that kept me going for months. So those things were there. On the current tour, I, uh, uh, my set is made out of the second-hand DVDs of other stand-up comedians, <laughs> and... Um, which I can get for, I won't pay more than 50p for any of them, and it's all about the collapse of physical media. But every night I'm required to destroy about 30 or 40 of them by stamping on them. And um, so I have to go every couple of weeks to these CEX trading places and buy hundreds of copies of 50p DVDs by stand-up comedians. And it's, and, um, it's normally all right all around the country, but in Liverpool, 
I was trying to buy about 50 of those hundreds of Michael McIntyre ones. I bought about 50 of them. And they wouldn't let me do it because they said, we know what you're trying to do. I said, what am I trying to do? And they said, you're trying to make these scarce so that you can... So that you can own all of them that are in Liverpool and then resell them back to us at an inflated rate. I thought, how desperate must people be in Liverpool if they think there are people trying to fabricate a second-hand to drive up the market value of second-hand Michael McIntyre. And I couldn't. I was saying, no, I just, I just smash them every night, in public, which is harder to, to explain. But that, that it's interesting watching that is sort of the end of the end of physical media and. Uh, and the fact that in the, in the charity shops now where you would have found amazing things, everything's gone online. And I wonder again, is that part of what you're, is that part of why it's, you feel it's the last London and time to say goodbye to the, the adventure of being, of being a person who's interested in culture is sort of disappearing from it in a way? Because yeah, I think, that, I think again, that's true. Yeah. I think it's all part of the kind of internet effect, which you've probably been talking about with Jarrett Kobeck, this, this yeah. idea of... Um, However, all that knowledge superficially is available, but the older, deeper, stranger knowledge is, is kind of vanishing because there's, there's no territory in which it can happen. It's funny you should, you should mention Jarrett Kobeck. If he is he, um, a new young American writer who's in denial about what a great writer he is. I think he sort of seems to be um, he seems to be embarrassed by the fact that he's suddenly taken seriously by an establishment he. Well, it kind of goes against you. If, you're, if what you do you're, in your sense of self-image is to do with the idea that you're independent and, yeah. and heroic and embattled and hidden, and then suddenly you're wildly popular, that's quite hard to cope with. Yeah. But he's, he's, I mean, I read, coincidentally, his last but one novel, I Hate the Internet and This, more or less back-to-back, and it seems strange that they... That I, I Hate the Internet is, uses the gentrification of San Francisco as a way of looking at the sort of corporate takeover of the world by big uh, internet companies and it, it dovetailed really neatly with this book and then I was in um, Bristol recently talking to a guy from a psychedelic band The Heads and he said his next album's going to be about the gentrification of Bristol where everyone's being priced out into the countryside and there's guys with good jobs sleeping in tents on the side of the river it seems like it's almost the only story to tell at the moment mm. precisely because it affects writers and artists so much the very people that are that are either consuming or making work there the space in which they do it the audience they pitch it to is uniquely affected by the speed of these changes isn't it it is no absolutely and and what with Jarrett Kovac you know I, I think I corresponded with him years and years ago at the time of something like Whitechapel Scarlet Tracings when he was obviously looking at London as being some sort of baroque, mysterious place and was interested in a kind of a, a poetic way of writing about that. And then gradually our paths merge again years and years later with very much the same attitude to the world, but his, he is living in, in the sort of devil's jaws in San Francisco where all of this is absolutely manifest. Yeah. And, you know, the forms of public transport have been taken over by these super buses carrying people out to Silicon Valley and everything is there much more extreme than the version we're do- talking about here. I mean, it almost happens too fast to document. By the time you've got it down on paper, it's... Uh, but he's also, he's, he's, he's very good on the kind of lynch mob attitudes that emerge in, from internet technologies that somebody relatively innocent can be pilloried and, and it just becomes a tidal wave of stuff that's, you know, which is not something I've gone into at all because I don't really 
live on, on the media I'm only seeing the um, effects of it on, on the surface of the world as, as I move across it I found it useful reading things like Twitter and below the line comments and articles which takes us back to exactly where we started which is I've decided about 10 years ago almost subconsciously that I would make my stage persona into the very person that all the people online who hated me appeared to hate <laughs> and I sort of went became more like it because it seemed that they, there was some sort of need for this figure you know and uh uh, which is sort of, I suppose, why I started off... It's worked quite well. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose it's why I started off asking you about the extent to which the, 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 the voice is a, is a construct. I'm, I'm going to uh, uh, see if there is another... Yeah, before we... Yeah, um... Thank you. Well, I mean, uh, the thing with Driffield is there's nobody called Driffield. It was an invented name from the start. He, he kind of manipulated this, this incredible persona. Um, and he became very successful and, and quite a public figure by doing virulently rude guidebooks to the second-hand bookshops of England and covering all of them. So he's now, he was out eccentrically dressed. But he disappeared for, as you probably know, for a, for a number of years and one of the things that had happened there was that he thought someone was chasing him to make him pay some of the many, many outstanding bills that were after him. But the guy chasing him was actually trying to find him to give him a check because one of his customers had died who collected magic books and had left him 25 grand. Only it took, took this guy about two years to catch up with him. And once he'd got this money, he went. He lived in India for for quite a period of time, and he emerged back in London and and ran into all kinds of sto storms and disappeared from public view. Where I, I mean, he's still he's still around somewhere, but he's he's very purposely not not visible anymore. Um, he's, he and the the book trade and the areas that he lived in and on have gone. So essentially, he can't exist in that way anymore. I mean, he was he was one of the the figures from the end of a, of a long long period of time. He'd have fitted into the eccentrics that you could have tracked him back into the Victorian era, but he's gone. And the other one, Martin Stone, just died not too long ago, and sort of appears in this book as a ghost. Okay, we'll wrap it up. Thanks for coming, uh, Ian Sinclair. Thank you, Anna. This has been a great pleasure. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.